So there it is, we have an evolution hymn. Now you may laugh, but I'm still looking for an opportunity to introduce you all to the hymn about future contact with aliens. It's in there. I love Unitarian Universalism. So recently, in our spirit play classroom upstairs where we teach through story, I introduced the first part of our beginning story from the Big Bang up to the first appearance of life on Earth. You heard that a little bit when the kids were up front. We had a lively discussion with kids from three-year-olds on up to a few tweens trying to imagine the nothing before the Big Bang, wondering whether astronauts bought microbes to the moon and are they still up there? Wondering what sandstorms on Mars are like and whether there might be more life out there somewhere in the universe. This week, I'm putting the finishing touches on the second part of that story, which tells the story of life's evolution from the first simple cells through eons of slow growth and change and times of calamity and rapid transformation on up to human existence, that tiny little tip on the timeline. I've been fascinated by this story for a long, long time now. I can remember walking out in the woods behind the UU church where I grew up with my father, talking to him. I remember him throwing a stone up at a tree trunk to try to show me about how high the shoulder of one of the giant ground sloths would have been. In college, my geology professor asked me why a religion major was taking so many geology classes. And I said to him, because I want to tell this story. Because it's important where we come from and how all this came to be. But to hear a scientist tell it in a textbook, you'd think it was boring. More recently, when my children were smaller, our previous director of religious education, Sally Lieberman, asked church parents in this church what they wanted their children to learn in their time in religious education. And there were lots of good answers, learning to make thoughtful choices, to care for others, learning of the world's great wisdom stories and UU principles in history. And I kept wanting to say, I want them to learn the deep time story. I want them to learn the story of how all this came to be. But it seemed like such a strange request, and I couldn't figure out how to say why it seemed so important. But here I am, these past few weeks, combing through textbooks and burning little pictures of trilobites and plesiosaurs onto a set of wooden stacking boxes, trying to figure out how to make the biggest story of all make sense to a three-year-old. And in the midst of it all, a friend asks me, why? Why tell this story in a church? These kids all know about dinosaurs. They know about mammoths. They'll hear the rest in science class, more or less. What's it got to do with religion? 
And I thought. And the first answer that came to my mind was defiant. Because creation stories have always been a part of religion and because people were excommunicated from the church, shunned or sometimes even killed for naming scientific truths about our world that ran contrary to old myths. Our forebearers dreamed of the freedom to tell this story to their children in a church. And that's true. But it's only a small part of the reason. It's good to know our history, but the importance of this story is right here in the present moment. We need to know this story. We need to know it now. Every mythology has its creation myth. Anthropologists say it's often the first story in an oral tradition, the kernel around which the other stories collect. And while people often understood that their creation stories were not literal truth, we have always known about metaphor. Stories about the beginning of the world and the origins of the first humans often expressed how people in that time and place saw themselves and their place in the world. Walter Wright Arthen writes, traditionally, myth has told us about origins, about how things began, and in doing so, it orients us. It tells us where we are from, and therefore, who and what we are, and how we should live. For the traditional myth-teller to know how a thing came to be is to know a thing about how it truly is. And not to know the origin of a thing is not to understand it truly. The old stories tell of people shaped by divine hands or led out of darkness, given dominion over the earth or offered it as a refuge, these early people are depicted as everything from misbehaving children to compassionate communities to heroes who fought off monsters and raised up islands. But always, they're central to the story. The truth as we are coming to know it is harder to relate to. We're essentially accidents like all living things. We're latecomers to the stage in a play that has stretched for billions of years before our arrival, whose stars have been strange sea creatures and giant lizards with names that are hard to pronounce. And the whole play is occasionally given to sudden and unpredictable intermissions. It can be easy to feel like our lives are meaningless in that frame. It doesn't sound like a story you want to tell yourself in the hard times. But there are currents within it that are compelling and even beautiful. What does it tell us? The first thing it tells us is that we are smaller than we think we are. In the grand sweep of life on earth, our time here has been only an instant. Even now, plants and insects outnumber us wildly. 
Life on earth has a gravity that does not depend on us and which deserves our respect. And I hope that in learning to see ourselves as perhaps a little smaller, we do not see ourselves as cast down, but rather learn more to treasure the rest of our fellow players. And also, we are precious. We are unlike anything that has come before us, the product of a million tiny miracles. There was never any guarantee that we would come to be. And thus, our existing at all is a wonder. And I hope that that knowledge burning in us will lead us to want to use our lives and our time well. The story also teaches us that life is both resilient and terribly fragile. It is easy as a human being to assume that life will always be pretty much as it's been in our lifetimes. Even things that happened 10 years before our birth can feel like ancient history and possibly far away. And it's easy to assume that things will just more or less keep going as they've been. And it's usually true. But our story teaches us that there are forces which can upset Earth's systems such that life cannot endure. The crises are few and far between, but they are possible. And we have the potential to become one. But also, even when those crises come, life doesn't end altogether. People talk sometimes about climate change and the fear that all life on Earth will end, but it won't. We might, but something will live. And the space that a crisis leaves behind is an opportunity for something new to arise. It has happened time and again in the deep history. There's this very early age when the first little lives stumbled on to photosynthesis, to making life out of light. And they thrived on the sunlights and they breathed air, oxygen into the air for the first time. And oxygen was poison to most of the living things at that time. And a great, great many of them died. But, with that oxygen came potential, a wealth of energy for creatures that could use it, and soon life flourished and diversified as never before. Poison turned life giver. And there is also the story of Aomaya, a name that I wish we all knew. She was our little rat-like ancestor. Aomaya means little mother. She lived in the shadow of the dinosaurs. 
hiding from giants. And when their calamity came, she survived it. And I'm sure it wasn't easy, but she came through and her children and her children's children grew and spread to roam the earth with a thousand faces. And we are among them. There's the cautionary tale of our near ancestors who spread out from Africa and met creatures that had never seen us before and they saw endless food for the taking. And so they devoured species after species, repeating it again and again and again right down to the modern age as they have marched across the globe. There are horrors in our history, but there are also wonders. And I think at the heart of it all, there is this one precious detail, that what we became, we became because of each other. We did not come to dominate this earth by being the strongest or the fastest because we never were. Even our cleverness alone was not really the advantage. These minds, these words, we didn't develop them for hunting or building shelter. We learned them because of our connections to one another. We worked in communities from our earliest times, and we needed to understand each other to build and navigate these relationships that were so complex. In a very real sense, politics and gossip made us what we are today. And we made art from the beginning. It's one of the earliest signs of human presence. We made art to show one another who we were and what we'd seen. And we made art because we could imagine something that was not yet. And that may be for us the most precious thing of all, the most unique, that we can look at the world and see not what is but what could be. And we can work to make it happen. I don't know if there's any other creature in all of that long history who could do that quite the way we can. And that is also our saving grace, that we can learn from what has been and imagine and, be, and make reality what can be, and that we are because we are together. That's where we came from, and that's who we are. As surely as we belong to the universe, we belong together. We join here to transcend the isolated self, to reconnect, to know ourselves, to be at home here on earth, under the stars, linked with one another. Come, sing a song with me. <laughs>